0: This episode is brought to you by my wonderful patrons. I'd like to give a special shout out to my top tier patrons David from Portland, Tom from Pancake Analytics, Leo, the Snorlaxian, Connor from Rock Pokemon, Mike, Night Night, Hogan, and Big No Face. Thank you so much for believing in me and backing the podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support these episodes, become a patron. I have two tiers at $3 and $5 a month. Joining the first tier gives you exclusive access to Patreon posts and a vintage card from my collection signed by me. The $5 tier gives you access to everything you get in the $3 tier, along with also having access to our Discord community. It gives you the opportunity to talk to other collectors, discuss market performance and news, show off your mail days, and of course, ask questions. Now, whether or not you join, I just appreciate you listening. Hello, everyone. This is Jess, and welcome to the Geeked Out Collecting Podcast, where we apply financial and investing principles to our favorite hobby collectibles like Magic the Gathering, Pokemon, Fortnite, comic books, all of these fun and cool hobby sectors. We do it all. And so for today's episode, I'm really happy to bring on Connor, who is someone that I've met through the hobby online who has just been a tremendous source of information just on approaching hobby collecting from an investing standpoint. He is a financial professional by day and by night he is a hobby collector and what he does is he takes everything from the perspective of investing money into the hobby, but also buying things that he likes. He, he does a pretty good job, I would say, of balancing the two. He has just a tremendous, tremendous collection. And I loved this episode because of all of the insight he brings. He, he talks about things from his own personal experience, but it also comes from a very grounded and informed place because he's able to tie it back to financial concepts, principles, and theses. So I really love how he's able to break down all of the insights that he has on hobby collectibles and Pokemon and, you know, the effect of 2020 and and as we move on to 2021. There's a lot of (laughs) tremendous insight here for you to enjoy. Just as a side note, I have no idea what happened with my mic during this recording, but... The levels are kind of all all sorts of off. And so I apologize in advance. I tried to do my best to help mitigate the levels. For some reason, my mic just gets too loud. So I apologize in advance if you're not able to get through this because of my mic. I completely understand. So next time will be better, I promise. But I really do hope at the very least that you enjoy Connor's insight. He's very, very good at what he does. And I really appreciate how he has very much a passion for informing people on these, these things. He, he wants people to make educated decisions. He doesn't want people to lose money. I mean, no one really wants people to lose money, but, but he really cares about people having the right information. So he was the perfect person to have on for this week's podcast. So anyways, thank you so much again. I appreciate you being here and welcome, Connor.
1: Appreciate you having
0: me on. Yeah, I mean, this was definitely bound to happen. Just with all, like, everything that you know, this was definitely going to happen. um And you've like definitely helped me rewire some things I think in my head. So, but the first thing that we can talk about is I want you to quickly do an intro of yourself and let us know like what your origin story is as a collector. So,
1: sure. Yeah. So my name's Connor. Uh, you can find me over at rock pokemon on instagram um i am in the financial services industry so i work in work in wealth management uh professionally so disclaimer nothing i say here is uh to be construed as investment advice it's just my (laughs) own opinion so got that out of the way um but my so i live uh live in upstate new york uh move move back here for for a job after after a, a stint down in the New York city metro area. And, um, you know, my origin story from, from a collector standpoint is really, uh, goes, you know, like most all the way back to the, to the late nineties. Right. My, my dad was a big, and and our family was big sports people. So I always grew up, you know, getting sports memorabilia, uh, sports cards. Um, And then within that also Pokemon cards, like I was a huge, like I was just kind of a little nerdy kid. Like I loved like Mm -hmm. Animorphs books and playing Pokemon. Those were great. Right. (laughs) I had all of them, the whole set. Until recently we gave them away. Um, but, uh, we, uh, yeah, we, we basically grew up. Um, I was, you know, really, really fortunate and blessed, uh, with a great family and I was able to, um, you know, be afforded a lot of opportunities, you know, we got to go on trips. And I remember, you know, playing my playing my Game Boy Color and playing Pokemon Yellow or Pokemon Blue, like was really big into that as a a kid, still play it on my phone nowadays. Um, But I, I was, I, I went to a really small school growing up. So I was talking about this with a friend the other day, like, I, I don't have as many vivid memories of like, Bringing my cards, like my Pokemon cards, to school and like trading them. Like I just remember collecting them, and I like remember my binder, and I remember being at my grandmother's house and like opening packs, and then later on, like selling extra cards, like at a garage sale she would have every year. Like so, I have a lot of memories um, of that. Um, You know, over the years, I've I've really focused a lot on my sports memorabilia collection. So I have anything from like the poster behind me that we we were just talking about before we got started that's a national championship Syracuse signed poster to I've got, you know, Joe DiMaggio baseball and Derek Jeter, you know, jersey. Like um my dad and my mom too. And my dad especially was just a huge sports guy. You know, he was always our our coach in the various sports we played. I grew up playing um largely football i kind of uh burnt out of some of the other sports but but largely largely football and wrestling um and so over the years you know he would we would get you know like i never got booster boxes of pokemon cards i got booster boxes of like nba cards and nfl cards and we would go to this like giant card show that my uncle would put on so so early on it was like instilled in me that like oh these are like really cool players that you like, and they might be, you know, worth something someday. Right. So it was always kind of like, Oh, you had this invaluable sports, you know, memorabilia collection. I was like, Oh, okay. Like it's stuff on my shelf. I really like it, but you know, what, what do I know as a kid? So, um, over the years I've, um, kind of developed a few different areas that I like to collect. I went through a phase where I collected a lot of bobbleheads. So I have a lot of like sports <laughs> bobbleheads, which are neat. I, I can't get around to the Funko Pops. They're like super they're weird to me. They're, they're I, just
0: like a bobblehead.
1: <laughs> I know, but the, the eyes just weird me out. And honestly, thankfully, I don't like them or else I would have no money because there's like thousands of them. So There's so um, many. There's so many. I mean, there's like 10 different Pikachu ones even like it's crazy. So 100%. Um, yeah so so over the years i you know I hadn't done a lot of like active buying in sports, like really, it was just you know when I was a kid, I would go to the card shows my my dad would always get us stuff for Christmas and our birthdays for you know stuff he would win on radio auctions or or go you know my work with my uncle on to to get to get different signed helmets uh, you know mini helmets and cards and and so much fun. Cards. <clears throat> yeah that's awesome
0: no I was gonna say that's awesome winning stuff in radio auctions I forgot those even existed
1: I I know right I think that's where that poster (laughs) came from actually behind me so uh yeah so so kind of fast forward and you know when it comes to Pokemon it's interesting because like it it went really in and out right like You know, I didn't think about it much, you know, from the time I was a kid until maybe like my senior year of high school when like it became cool again for us to like bring our Game Boys in and play in study hall senior year. So that's like 2010. Right. And then, you know, it kind of fades back out and I'm in college and um, got really into um was introduced to like Japanese anime when I was in college and that kind of brought me back into that kind of like pokemon area right with the with the early show and and a lot of other anime series and then um you know fast forward and now from a from a financial aspect it's been you know the broad category of collectibles is something I've been super interested in for you know a while now kind of throughout my whole professional career and always seen it as an opportunity to Diversify my portfolio to potentially grow my net worth um, and just like really cool stuff to have, like, I'm not the uh, type of collector who likes to have a million things right I I like a very much more like targeted smaller um, collection. I'm like I'm like the worst collector ever because I don't like having <laughs> too much stuff. Yet I have That's
0: stuff. ironic. <laughs> and considering <laughs> how much me, you collect.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. But it helps me stay disciplined too, because I don't just want to be like overflowing with with like stuff everywhere. So Oh for sure. Um, yeah, that's kind of what you know brought me brought me to today.
0: Mm-hmm. That's that's really awesome. And it it's really cool too that like even though you kind of went through pockets of like you were doing Pokemon as a kid and then got back into it when you were in college and doing and you know getting back introduced into anime I had like a similar experience with that like once I kind of got into anime and as I was older like Pokemon naturally came with that so it makes total sense and what you haven't touched on is the breadth of like all the things that you actually collect like all the different categories or hobby sectors if if we really want to go that route, call them different hobby sectors you have a ton of stuff and not just in sports and not just in pokemon and especially japanese pokemon but you collect um harry potter um did you ever collect magic that wasn't a thing that you collected
1: magic was just never a thing for me i know so little about Magic the Gathering to be honest other than like I'm pretty sure there's like a couple funny South Park episodes from growing <laughs> up that reference Magic the <laughs> Gathering other than that like yeah. I just have no knowledge whatsoever um but there's some beautiful looking cards for certain um yeah but I do I do collect um I've always been a huge Harry Potter fan uh the books were super meaningful to me growing up they were super formative um, I, I, I was like obsessed with, with those books. Uh, and I, and I still love it to this day. I mean, I have, I have a Harry Potter, like tattoo. I, um, I've seen the Broadway show, uh, twice, which is like a huge, oh, wow. like two part extravaganza. Um, and, and Harry Potter is interesting because the trading card game is, I guess it would be classified as a dead game, but, Mm -hmm. there is a like there are people who still play it and there's a small community who who like to collect it as well so um i actually recently bought a sealed booster box just on a basically not a whim but it was like this is something i really want even though i've kind of missed the boat of being able to get it you know at a a very cheap price (laughs) it was more a want than an investment but It was printed by wizards of the coast who also printed pokemon originally so i have a thesis that things with with that logo on them will will tend to hold some value um and harry potter is super interesting because there's a lot of catalysts that could potentially come to fruition right now so you've got like the 25th anniversary of the uk release of the first book coming up in a couple years in 22 i think um you know there's talk of a hbo live show there's uh an rpg uh video game that's supposed to was supposed to come out this year it's coming out next year um I so think there's I a heard lot about like, that one recently the yeah, video game yeah. they just like pushed the release date i guess um i haven't read too much into it but um, it, it, the screenshots look pretty neat for any Harry Potter fan out there. Um, but yeah, I just think, you know, the card arts really interesting on the trading card game, but I just, you know, I have, have a feeling that we could see it gain some popularity, not just the trading card game, but kind of Harry Potter collectibles as a whole, um, obviously controversies around JK Rowling, uh, throw some, throw some, uh, monkey wrenches into that but true true uh all to be said i'm very happy to own i have you know sealed sets of books from 10 15 years ago and and a lot of cool i guess you'd call them little knickknacks got some booster packs and blister packs that i've had over the years so and a bunch of my original cards too which which is cool right they're all in you know they're like played condition but they uh they really need to have and bring back a lot of a lot of memories for sure you know opening those packs same time i was opening pokemon
0: <laughs> yeah that's definitely really fun i mean the high that you get from opening packs across anything it's the same <laughs> it, it's the yeah. same honestly it feels a little bit like a gambling rush but you know <laughs> that's for a different day but yeah you, you've got a pretty extensive uh you you have the most extensive Harry Potter collection that I know. <laughs> so or it feels extensive to me at least. Um but yeah, that's really fun. And you should and see
1: some of the YouTubers. They put me to sham.
2: Oh there's my god.
1: There's a whole Harry Potter YouTube. You know, there's a couple of really big guys, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a cool collection. It's, 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 I'm, I'm glad to have it. So I'm looking at some books over there. So.
0: <laughs> you know, honestly, I'm not even really yet ready yet to dip my toes into Harry Potter just because like, there's so many hobby sectors that I know exist. I know that are doing crazy things like what you were telling me with the boosters, the base set boosters that have been recently selling for very high Um, which I can't remember what you told me. I I can't remember if you told me or not how much you spent on yours, but I'm sure that there's ROI there now.
2: Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's because I, you know, I noticed that I don't think Hills has them available anymore. I know they had like dug out a crate recently of sealed booster boxes. Um, I got mine at two to three times below what I've seen some recent ones selling for which has happened very rapidly almost overnight because I just I mean I just got mine like last month like I had, it's not like I had this box forever so um super interesting I've been I you know kind of some of the catalysts I talked about earlier might be reasons for that I'd like to look into it more because I'm curious why some of the prices are, are popping off a little bit but you know, we've we've talked about this previously. Is I don't I don't really like I don't watch my stuff that much, right? Because mm-hmm. you know I I tend to be more you know of a medium to long term collector, right? So obviously I'm not opposed to to making short term money either in reality or on paper, but I I generally am not investing in something whether it's a sealed product or a card or uh, some other piece of memorabilia to really see that like instant doubling in a you know a week or two weeks and then sell it that's just not my game um and part of that connects to you know how i talk about having a a concentrated you know group of of collectibles and that i you know for better or for worse i do not really like to buy things that I don't personally enjoy myself or have a deep connection to. Same. Which is why like it's yeah, which is why like like you made such a great uh purchase with those Series One Fortnite cards. And like Fortnite is just like another thing that I just other than the massive popularity, I know nothing about. Like like it's kind of like where i've come in my life is that like you know back in 2016 when when xy uh kind of breathed new life into pokemon um honestly i just wasn't in a place where i was focused on that like in 2016 i was transitioning jobs i moved from new jersey to rochester uh i competed in a bodybuilding competition that year and like, that's just not where my head was at at that time. Like, a lot of the content I was consuming was like fitness oriented. I was very focused on putting in, you know, very long hours at work to, you know, grow my professional skill set and prove myself. Um, you and had a lot so, of stuff going um, on.
0: I mean, yeah. bodybuilding is a lot of work in itself. It, and then,
1: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is. And it, it it it'll consume you, like things like that. Like in the same way like collecting or Pokemon can, like if, if you don't set good boundaries, you can create a real tunnel vision for yourself. And unfortunately that leads to you like missing opportunities. So um I certainly, you know, saw some of the writing on the wall, but I also, you know, didn't have as much disposable income as I do now you know, I was earlier out of college, I wasn't making a ton of money. Um, some things I was doing, like bodybuilding shows and and other, you know, pursuits were, you know, f- taking the majority of my disposable income, my excess income. So um, versus, you know, fast forward now, where, you know, I'm still a single guy living in a rented apartment in upstate New York, I have a I have a better reign you know, being longer in my career now on how I can start allocating to some of these uh, collectibles in a more meaningful way, because I see that the growth potential, you know, I can see beyond uh, what's right in front of me. So.
0: Yeah, I, I can definitely understand that because, you know, you saw everything popping off, but you still weren't in a place to really take advantage of the opportunity. So even if you could get those things at a good deal, it still wasn't a good deal because you were still focused on other things. And, you know, like what you were just saying, disposable income is a huge factor here too, which I can definitely relate to because when you start to see something pop off, you know, like, it, like pretty much i mean i guess i'm just repeating myself it's not a good opportunity if you don't have the liquidity to actually get into the opportunity um even if it's a good deal even if it's a steal if you don't have liquidity you can't you can't jump on and that was similar with me too um especially when i got back into collecting i got back into collecting when i didn't have as much disposable income as today and that also affected my decisions too and also made me not a Well, at least for myself, because I was learning how to approach these collectibles in an investment kind of way, there was a lot of bumps in the road for myself. So, uh, not having, and and it was probably better that way, actually, now that I think about it, not having as much money to put into something that you don't know much of means that you're not going to put, you know, make the mistake of putting a ton of money, a ton of actual money into the wrong places. So, it's kind of nice that it works that way, but but yeah, that, that's always a barrier, um, which is why we always talk about, and it goes back to what we've talked about before, is people who have the nostalgia and connect with brands or IPs or or whatever you want to, to group that in, um, you know, you're not going to see jumps in the market unless they have the opportunity or the liquidity to actually get back into it, which is, you know... Probably part of what we saw, too, in 2016, other than Pokemon actually making deliberate changes to bring back the spirit of Pokemon. Um, But then us as kids who opened up the packs were now actually in a place to to do those things. So it makes me wonder, too, is, you know, when will we start to hit a lull? in the Pokemon market with modern cards because, okay, now the kids have started to grow up and now they're focused on other things. They're trying to get through school. They're trying to finally get, you know, uh, you know, a jump in their career. And then once we see that five or six years into their careers, you know, like, that'll be interesting to see the market move in that way. Cause I I can't imagine it wouldn't follow that same pattern um, that we've already seen.
1: Yeah, it's definitely... So obviously, like the game has changed, where there's such an immense amount of attention on the hobby, um, but these things tend to move in cycles the same way other markets do, um, and I, I can't, you know, trees don't grow to the sky, right? Like there are, there are certainly things, both vintage and modern, that are currently. You know, priced in my opinion at five to 10 year out prices, right? So that plays into that like potential cooling off in some areas of the market. Um, I think it's also an important reason, too, to, you know, I think about this a lot. Us as, you know, kids who, you know, grew up in the 90s and Watsy is kind of our thing and it's what draws on that nostalgia. Like that isn't like that for everyone. Um, but luckily, with the hobby being so big now, there's a lot of like parents with kids who are sharing their you know vintage stuff you know their Pikachu, their charmander, their Charizard with their kids, even though their kids grew- are growing up with you know gen eight plus Pokemon um but I think it's interesting and important to you know to tear out a little bit, right to to look at the kind of age brackets of different sets when kids were growing up collecting those, how popular they were, where the market was at that time, right? Where was the market in two thousand five and two thousand ten and two thousand and fifteen and you know, for example, like a lot of folks who grew up with watsy sets are you know hitting some really you know good strides in their earning years, right but some of the kids that grew up with like i don't know more of the neo sets for example some of the ex sets like they're still far away from having the disposable income to really spend on those potentially like they could be a couple years out to a decade out so that's how i look at look at that is that <clears throat> some of those some of those sections of the market will certainly go into lulls cuz the demand just won't be there and i think that's where you can potentially find opportunity now if you're making that bet on the future that those kids, when they grow up a little more, are going to have the disposable income and the nostalgia pull to make investments in, you know, those those sets that they grew up with. So it's, it's certainly a tough game because, you know, we grew up being, you know, kids throughout, you know, from basically, you know, the 90s to now. It's not like we had the perspective we do now throughout that period. So it's not necessarily going to be like the same. It's not going to repeat itself the same way. Like we talk about this with modern, right? So modern, you know, people in 1999, unless you were Gary or a few other very intelligent people who saw the writing on the wall in the hobby, you weren't stashing away hundreds of booster boxes, cases of booster boxes, whereas you've got people today taking you know boxes of mcdonald's promos and shoving them in their basement and hoping that in 30 years they're going to be worth something and that's that's tough because you're trying to create like a self-fulfilling prophecy that because of how it's starting can potentially not be fulfilled in the future if that makes sense so it's really interesting to to think about like if. If kids aren't allowed to make memories, if supply stays super high over years, like you are, you are pulling away the catalysts that were in 1999 that have made you know vintage so valuable today. Um, and that's something I think about a lot with with modern, certainly, and where the hobby's going to go.
0: Wow, um, I really like how you described it, and you've harkened uh, it as a catalyst because we've had these conversations before. I mean, like what I was telling you yesterday about my, my coworker who was just trying to get McDonald's Happy Meals for her kids and couldn't because they were all sold out. And so I I like that you harken that back to a catalyst that where there's a lot of non-collectors that are in the hobby right now. And I mean that's obviously that obviously has the pros and the cons to that and obviously the con right now is that it's they're squeeze they're trying to squeeze out too much of pokemon which is also causing another con potentially with the reprints <laughs> um the reprints that pokemon has decided to move forward with because they're like okay well We see that people aren't getting sets. We just want people to be able to get sets. Um, We're going to reprint shit. um, But you've said a lot of really cool things that I wanted to bring up. And and the first thing I wanted to bring up was um, going back to kind of the cycles and the patterns that we're seeing. I mean, really, if investors want to get really, really good ROIs right now, uh, generations that are in lulls right now are like the Gen Threes and the Gen Fours, and we've already seen the huge jump in the Gen One and the Gen Twos. I mean, not even fully in the Gen Twos, honestly. But um, you know, I guess so. Maybe I guess in a broader sense to say, Gen Two, Gen Three, Gen. 4, Four are probably the next ones that are really going to pop in the next 10 to 15 years H- however many or even five years maybe who knows um but it seems like those should be the places if you're trying to build a nest egg and you're trying to get something low to potentially be, be worth something in the future that that those sets might be the places to go because those are the next one like what we we're saying you know when the kids get introduced to them um you know so so i think People really need to kind of follow that cycle, um, which you know, Gen threes and Gen fours. I'm still learning a ton of. I those are some weak sets for me. Yeah, but.
1: yeah, same. Um, I think you know the the hardest part too, though, is that like like you said, there are there are so many people in this hobby right now that aren't just collectors, right? They're they're looking to potentially make a quick buck, or they just pulled out their childhood set and they just want to like sell it or whatever. And they think they're sitting on a gold mine, you know, for better or for worse. But it's not like we're the only people who are thinking, Hey, if this is really popular now, then maybe the next generations are going to be really popular in like five years because like for all the reasons we just said. So again, it's, it's it's very difficult to make bets on like specific sets becoming, you know, into popularity based on, you know, all the things we just said, right? Kids coming into a certain age and having, you know, the ability to make income. Like it's a great thesis. And like it's – I just explained it. Like it's it's kind of a thesis I think about a lot. But at the same time, the, the difficult part of that is like now that there's so many people in the hobby, it's it's not like it's a unique thought, right? So true. I mean, I mean maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm giving people too much credit, um, and and they don't think as critically as as maybe we do or some people who are who are true collectors and people who are really involved in the hobby, you know, day to day, are but there's, you know, there's certainly a lot of a lot of risks, right? And that's, you know, why I have always largely focused on vintage, because I do think there's, you know, if I look at someone like myself, and I'm, you know, coming up on 30 this year, um, those are items I'm going to want for a long time. And I'm just getting into some of my best earning years, right? And I know that things I have invested in or things I have in my personal collection that I think will appreciate have that potential um, but I'm not trying to necessarily force the issue and take a bet on something that might not come to fruition and that's what's really hard and like some things might right and and some of those might be, you know, much much shorter term. Like, you know, if a modern set ends up going out of print that had massive popularity, um, like we're seeing that right now with um, one of the Japanese sets, Tag Team GX. Like, my one of my connections in Japan is like, yeah, went to the Pokemon Center. Like, they don't like that's not on shelves anymore. Like, pretty sure that that's totally out of print. Um, I've had other folks tell me that Shiny Star V like has one like one the third wave is like the last print wave that's done um shiny star v is still to be proven but you've seen tag team gx just pop off lately i mean i i was buying you know booster boxes at like 60 bucks and now they're at least double that if not more like seemingly overnight like in the past month or two wow and and some of that happens because of that like going out of print right but that's like That's that more short term bet, right? Mm -hmm. But who knows, like, if in 10 years, like, someone's gonna want that booster box. Like, I just don't know, which is why you really gotta like stick to your guns on the things you know the best, the things that you have think have the biggest demand potential. And also, some of those niches that true collectors are really gonna start to want when. We see the populations of a lot of items just kind of explode, and it's not as special okay, to own. Not as special to own a, you know, unlimited graded five, you know, Venusaur. Like it might seem great now, and it's really cool to have. But like, if everyone has them in like five years, then is it is special? Is they're going to, you know, supply and demand's everything in, in collecting, right? A- aside from the the. The standard of, you know, condition and scarcity. It's 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 really what plays in that scarcity point: supply and demand, right? Mm-hmm. And it's that supply um, that's that's really important there as well. So,
0: mm-hmm. and and you know, I, I like I like uh, the points that you bring up, and to kind of add to that, you know, how you were saying, you as a collector, you are buying things for yourself. And you are cherishing the things that you buy, which makes it hard for you and me as well to balance as a seller because you want to keep the stuff that you buy because you like it. And, and so, so that's, that's a really good, um, I mean, if you buy all the things that you want, you'll still at the end of the day, have a, have a collection that you want, um, so I mean that's one big point for people to help collectors win, quote unquote. If they have cool stuff that they like, they will win regardless, um, as long as they didn't pay an insane amount. <laughs> like right. we want, right. we do want to make sure that we we mitigate risk. If you if you and I like, because we're both looking at it buying things that we like and potentially ROI in the future, we also have to mitigate risk by. Uh, making sure that our buy-ins make sense too. So if you decide you want to make a bet on like the EX generation of sets, um, you know, following that thesis that we talked about of of kids growing up and having buying power, um, you know, just make sure that you buy in at the right prices or only focus on uh, you know the bigger cards in that set. Learn the sets, learn the expansions. Find out what cards are the most popular, um, or you could just default by just buying the starters and the Pikachu's right. and the Charizards of those sets. I mean, you really yeah. can't go wrong with buying those cards. But but you have to do things that will still mitigate your risk. Just because you buy a really cool card, you could have, and that's probably what we're gonna see now. Um, a lot of cards now, people are spending way more because you're, they're paying five to 10 year prices from now, which I do want to get into what helps you kind of determine those things. Um, but you know, we are going to see a lot of people lose because they're not watching out for that. And they're either falling for the FOMO, um, which I understand because I felt that too. Um, you know, I mean, we've all been there, but, um, just really making sure you do your research to know your sets, and and truly know when you've been priced
2: out,
1: <laughs> and yeah, letting that I think be that, okay. I think that things that are incredibly important for people newer into collecting, whatever it is, if it's sports cards or Pokemon cards or this new Digimon set that's coming out or bobbleheads or video games or whatever, collect things that you love that you're going to be happy to have. Don't do it for the money. Uh, understand that your cost basis is incredibly important. Meaning your what we just talked about, your entry point is incredibly important to potential returns on that investment. Um, and honestly, I think you know, kind of one of the things I just said I want to touch on more is don't do it just for the money right like you can't you can't just be in the collecting game to make a return like you got to actually genuinely love some of these things um or else you're going to be really unhappy oh and the other thing i was going to say is if you you know if you're if you're taking bets like that on on certain you know uh, future potentials of of under followed sets make sure not just that your entry point, your cost basis is is right, is low, but also the percentage of your, I guess your collectibles allocation, that it's not an outsized portion of that, right? You know i I see people, especially in modern, but really anything uh, across you know Pokemon especially they will just go all in on one thing. Like they will buy a hundred ETBs of some set and that's like all their, that's like all their capital tied up in one. Like it's basically a binary bet. It's a one or a zero because you, you have no diversification there. So I think it's important to collect, you know, across different, uh, Time series, different uh, languages, um, specifically English and Japanese, um, and then also too, you know, across different types of product. Right? You've got you've got sealed boosters, you've got sealed booster boxes, you've got sealed TVs, you've got um, obviously single raw cards, single graded cards. And then probably probably a potentially slept on portion of the hobby, especially with Pokemon, is some of the ancillary items that are more collectibles, like um, like, I don't know, like this deck box that I have, right? Um, you know, it was I have this one's open. These were the boxes that you could, you know, they had the little uh penny sleeves in them um the ultra pro runs with like the the little emblem on them and they're like higher quality penny sleeves they're not really penny sleeves um but i've got like a sealed one of these and it's got some awesome mewtwo and pikachu art like people will want to collect things like that too so it's it's broadening your focus but making deliberate investments that help you stay diversified and that you truly enjoy right because at the end of the day like we're just a bunch of grown-up kids playing with cardboard like let's buy things that we actually are going to enjoy and get some utility out of and joy out of or else it's it's not worth it you know it's it's really just not no no amount of money is worth the stress of collecting something that you don't like you know, it's like, you know, we have friends who've talked about this, like, um, and and you, you've talked about it too, like the idea of like being a day trader, right, in the stock market and how like stressful that is. Like, is that worth it? Is like the years of your life that's taking off like worth the money you're making, right? So I think it's important to to truly be enjoying, you know, what you collect. And that's like, you know, Heck, I could probably make some really good money on some really unique investments and make some cool flips and all that. But I like to stick to my guns and my core competencies and the things I've researched well. And I'd rather take a lower return and love what I own than take a big risk on something I don't and have it potentially be a zero. And you know, for better or for worse, that's just kind of my... My thing, I I I tend to be a more, you know, long term investor. I'm not a trader. It's the same, you know, I'm more of a long term investor with my with my other investment assets too. And uh the collectibles game is inherently, you know, a little longer term with, with a lot of these items, especially because of like the the frictional costs of flipping and the you know the the illiquidity. Right you can't just like sell it like a stock, right if you've got a card like it's everyone you know nothing nothing's a nothing's a return until you've sold it and that money's hit your account and that that can take a lot of time, and people don't value that mm-hmm. um so sorry i'm I'm rambling a bit, but uh, <laughs> I have so many thoughts oh no, you're good, um,
2: but, yeah,
0: I mean i mean there's there's a you know what's funny in all of the things that you said if you took out. The po- word Pokemon. Every time you said it, I would have thought you were talking about stocks. So <laughs> this is exactly why I brought you on, just because of that perspective that you bring. And um, what I did want to talk to you about, I mean, because there's so many good points that you've made, and and one point that I do want to help people get back to, um, which is managing your buy-in, you know, your entry point on something is how how do you suggest someone go about figuring out whether or not they're paying in inflated prices for something so like what you had mentioned five to ten year from now prices on some cards
1: yeah that's that's definitely it's easier said than done um especially because if you are not watching the market close enough, you can lose some of that price history, right? Because a lot of, you know, the easiest layup to go find price history is looking at eBay last sold, right? But those Mm -hmm. only go out like three, three months in the past, and then they start to fall off. Um, Right. Some of that, some of that data stays, you know, on PSA's website, if you can check the APR and uh, see some of the previous solds. But I think that it's important to understand the sentiment around something, so special delivery Pikachu, right? You have to come back to the idea of what is most important in collecting and it's really it's supply and demand, right? And supply and demand drives price, right? And that's part of that scarcity aspect of collectibles. So if you see something that is growing in price exponentially in a very compressed amount of time, there is a large potential for you to get burned trying to invest in that on the way up for a quick flip. Mm -hmm. And secondarily, there's a good probability of if that starts to sit up at a very high price, um, even for a, a short to medium amount of time, you may be purchasing it after a unwarranted rally. So even if it doesn't necessarily like crash from a price standpoint, it may not appreciate at all anything mm-hmm. beyond that, because the effectively the future expectations of that item have been priced into its current potential. So how I do it is i I stay away from a lot of hype items, right? So if a YouTuber's talking about it and they've got tens to hundreds of thousands of followers, I'm probably not interested now, if they're a more niche person that I follow in the community that I think has great ideas, then i then I start to look at it. But I try to stay away from from hype items um, mm-hmm. i I largely stay away from from most modern. Um, that I'm not sufficiently confident in still having upside, uh, and that hasn't moved drastically in price recently. Um, the hard part of that again is, you know, you you as a collector have to really protect yourself by by being um, a student of the market, right? So this so is something true. we talked about, right? So there's there's a difference between. Going on eBay or going on Mercari or going, you know, on any, you know, these online websites, by Japan, whatever, and looking up items you like and being like, okay, this one is, you know, this, you know, this slab is $150 in a PSA 9, and it's $140 in a CGC 9, and it last sold in a PSA 9 for 170 So that like might be a good. Deal and and you're you're looking at stuff you want and kind of pricing it out, mm-hmm. and then there's studying the kind of market and the trends that are happening, understanding the historical significance of certain items, understanding um, what the supply is right. So looking at the population reports, you know, which are you know we can certainly touch on later, but are only a small piece of the puzzle. Um, Truly understanding uh, scarcity of certain items, trends that are going on. Um, like I said, the historical significance. Right? Who's going to want this item? Why is it important to the hobby? All those things help protect you from buying into something that's hyped or overpriced. Right? Um, and all that to be said, there are certain items that I have personally purchased that I do not think I don't think are going to come down in price, but I do not think are going to appreciate very much in the next five to ten years. Right. And that's just in some ways the name of the game. If you miss the boat a little bit and then it comes down to, you know, do I really want this for my collection? Um, And if so, is it worth it to me to make that purchase knowing that, yeah, maybe I'll keep up with inflation over the next decade, but I'm not going to see a two, three, four, five X on this item. Um, But sometimes that's, that's okay. And that's, you know, it's something that you just want to purchase, right? It's, it's something you want for your collection, right? Not everything can be about the numbers. Um, I think that, you know, when it comes to 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 raw cards to grade, I think I'm I'm much more in the camp that I have to be getting an exceptionally good low cost basis where even with my added uh, cost of grading, I'm still going to come out better on the end if it if it hits, you know, the right grade point. Um, But yeah, I think that's I think that's a way that people can protect themselves is, is really being a student of the market watching the trends, not getting caught up in hype, and and not getting caught up, like you said before, in FOMO, fear of missing out. Like, rarely does a purchase made uh, out of um, a rushed uh, feeling or rushed emotional state make for a good investment. If it's worth it, right this second, it's probably Going to be worth taking an extra 20 minutes, two hours, two weeks to think about and research and decide, you know, hey, okay, if it goes up 5% over that time period, but it's still a really good choice, then you can go and pull the trigger. People get far too emotional in the way they invest in things, especially because it's the same way, and cut me off anytime uh in the no, same good. way the same way that uh the proliferation of things like Robinhood have allowed people to just trade stocks from their pocket at any time without thinking and it's almost just a game in the same way the the you know establishment of you know Mercari and eBay and their apps on your phone and all the alerts you get uh you know buy it now, buy it now, get the deal before it goes away like this this consumer oriented um, society that we really live in in the West. It'll it'll push you to make irrational decisions if you're not disciplined. Um, So it's also setting those boundaries for yourself, knowing your budget um, and not just buying things on a whim just because you can, just because you have cash in your pocket, but what's going to be the best choice for you from an investment standpoint and from like a uh, an ROI on your happiness, right? So mm-hmm. that's those are so true. I think about a lot. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with you. I think people need to remember, and I've said this in other but content before. The first thing that you want to do is know why you're buying. And the second thing that you need to do is set a budget (laughs) so that you can then build a strategy that fits within those first two, you know, parameters that you've set for yourself. Um, Because that will dictate everything, right? So if you don't, if you have disposable income. And you have a lot of things that you want to buy that are just cool. And those things also happen to be more expensive Then it's all right. And then if you're not looking very specifically at the ROI, you know, you don't necessarily have goals for that. That's not why you're buying. Then you can do whatever the frick you want, you know. Um, But then but then again, you know, if you are someone that doesn't have a big budget and so you have to be more deliberate. And more strategic with what you're buying because you do intend to have good ROIs. You know, you have to take all of those things into account. Those reasons matter. Why you collect matters. And that's why that's like the number one thing. Why are you collecting? And, and yeah, going. I
1: think that, oh, go ahead.
0: No, no, go ahead.
1: I was gonna say any anything, I think that anything in this hobby, in, in collecting in general, I think you have to be willing to uh, only allocate the amount of money that you're really willing to, I won't say lose, but for there to be like no potential return on, right? So, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, and that's why I think it's important to say, hey, I'm okay with, you know, 5% of my net worth being in collectibles, right? Because it's the same way I I might view, um, perhaps, you know, just in my opinion, like cryptocurrency, where it's it's a it's a high risk high reward type of investment. Collecting is is For definitely sure. definitely that. And it's it's not necessarily that like, you know, this Pikachu card is going to be worth zero in the future. It's that I spent X dollars now and in 10 years it's it's, you know, worth the same or less and then after inflation, you know, what could that 100 dollars have done allocated somewhere else, right? So you got to think about it in in that respect too. So what I think is really important for you know for for young collectors, young investors um, who are looking to diversify you know kind of their entire uh their net worth their asset allocation across all types of investments, you know hey if you're if you're investing hundred dollars in a in a pSA slab, you know maybe you should think about putting a matching hundred dollars into you know, the stock market or something, right? Oh, that's you know, interesting. That's not necessarily not necessarily like a it's not investment advice, it's not necessarily a recommendation, but there's there's this kind of ongoing uh thought in the financial community of you know X dollars spent should be matched in an investment account. So if I go buy a hundred and fifty dollar pair of Nikes, maybe I should put you know, have enough money so that i can put 150 dollars into something that might actually appreciate in value right mm-hmm. um obviously like pokemon is more like an, an investment than buying like you know uh a potentially investment than buying you know a new tv right right or, or a new car which is going to depreciate you know as soon as it rolls off the lot um but again i i like that aspect of of matching and being okay with hey, if I'm going to spend X amount, maybe I can put that same amount of money into something that's going to, that has a proven track record of producing wealth um, that is still risky, but has uh, a more defined long-term return profile uh, and is a little less um, binary, right? Because, hey, what happens if in 20 years, you know, what if, what if Disney buys Pokemon and screws up the entire brand and everyone hates it and it goes, it's, it's done. (laughs) Like not saying that, not saying that happens, but you know, there are things like that have happened over the course of history that have really, really burnt people. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it's, I think about those things a lot. I think, I think about it at the end of the day, if everything I owned uh, in Pokemon ended up being, you know, totally illiquid and not worth anything to anyone, would I still be happy having it on my desk? And if the answer is yes, I feel feel pretty good about it, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, as long as I'm reasonable with, with my budget and my spending, I don't just buy everything because I can. <laughs> um, so
0: yeah that that's yeah those are a lot of great points that you bring up because really what you're talking about is asset allocation and what are safe parameters for certain kinds of um, asset categories which we were in total agreement and i know a lot of other people are waking up to the idea of of hobby collectibles being physical asset classes so or a physical asset class, however you want to semantics, but um, and and that's funny too, we had a conversation recently about this because of of this year, I mean, obviously, like my whole thing thing is, is I've talked about, you know, having a collection being worth something close to a million dollars, which would be amazing and it would be great, but over the past few years or not past few years, but the past few weeks, and then especially considering that now. You know, the worth of my collection is now worth more than student loans that I have that I'm working to pay off because I would like to get rid of all of them completely. Um, Thinking about that and then thinking about, I think, what you had mentioned. I can't remember the number specifically, but something like, okay, so if you step back and you look at all of your net worth, your entire net worth, and and let's say you want hobby collectibles to play a part in that, whether that's five to 20%. I can't remember what we had mentioned. I want to say 20%, it seems like a little high, um, you know, within your overall portfolio, but okay. So if I want my collection to be worth a million dollars And I want it to be only five percent of my total net worth. And I'm looking at like a five hundred million dollar net worth. So looking at those numbers, it's kinda like, okay, hold up, let's pull back a little bit because you know, obviously and and this is why I've recently been pulling back on like I have not purchased anything. I mean, obviously I've been getting stuff because it's been taking a long time for things to get in, but (laughs) But like, I've had a really big pullback on myself and and I've had to really sort of look at things. I've not fully cemented how I want to go about doing things, but at the very least, I know what I am doing is slowing down because I need to make sure of that. I, I, I need to, you know, be more aggressive in my student loans. Um, and and like, for me, like I've always said that I've been aggressive with student loans, but with the pandemic, especially, I kind of completely shifted from that um, only because, you know, any of us can get laid off. So that was actually my Mm -hmm. shift. I I shifted from aggressively paying off those loans to aggressively saving just so I could Mm -hmm. have like six months or more um, saved up. So that was an emergency fund on my part. It's important. Yeah. And I mean, it's not that I didn't have an emergency fund is that, you know, how long could I actually weather being an employee? And so that was a real worry, you know? Um, In March last year. So that completely, you know, affected, you know, made me do a lot of things differently. But now that I've known that for the most part, I'm secure and right now and for the most part, you know, I know, even if I did go unemployed, I don't feel like it would be that long. And that comes a lot of, you know, resources and opportunities and things I've been able to do with my skill set. But even still, um, you know, I'm being a little reckless. Like, if I wanted to continue on that goal, which I still want to, like, I still like the idea of it and the pursuit of it. I mean, even if I don't hit it, if I hit, you know, 250,000 or 500,000, I mean, that'd still be awesome. But again, you know, when you look at someone that's been putting their life savings into a retirement fund, you're looking at someone saving around a million to five million, depending on how disciplined they were. So, honestly, putting those things into perspective, I would have to make a lot more money (laughs) you know in the next five years five to ten years for those numbers to really make sense so Mm. I've been hardcore pulling back but um but going back to kind of what we talked about with um you know keeping things uh, keeping things You bought honestly. I was about to ask a question that you've honestly already answered, which is how do people approach their net worth or their asset locations properly? So, I guess from your perspective with Pokemon, um, what would you say, and not financial advice, but what would you say is a realistic percentage of allocation when it comes to assets for that category?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I kind of look at. I kind of look at it as like collectibles as a whole. Um, so if you have, you know, if, if you're fairly established, right? If you if you've got low to tolerable amounts of debt, um, if you if you're generating income, if you're you're fully employed, gainfully employed, and, and have a kind of a career, and have have a you know a base uh, investment portfolio as well, right? Like something some core retirement savings, even just uh, You know, an after tax rainy day fund of cash, right? The way I look at it is like, hey, you know, for me, you know, I think somewhere around that, you know, 5% to 7.5% of net worth in collectibles as a whole is is probably a, a pretty sizable amount right for mm-hmm. any for any person out there and that's net worth right so that's that's your assets minus your your liabilities which is your debt right so if you've got a million dollars in cash in the bank account but you got a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage your net worth five hundred thousand right so
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i think about that like i said in kind of the broad aspect of you know it's pokemon it's sports it's you know the Harry Potter stuff whatever it's you know and it's also thinking about it too like hey some of this stuff is really part of like that it's all part of your net worth right it all has a dollar value today but what of it too is like kind of like uh something you see as a potential appreciating asset and what's something like you know like that Harry Potter booster box that i just kind of like bought cuz i wanted it on my shelf right like that's that's the same as like buying a tv in some ways right so Um, but I think that, you know, it, it, what's cool is like you have the potential, you know, collectibles have long been seen as a way to hedge inflation, um, to be a better store of value than, uh, potentially just holding cash. Um, you, you've really seen, you know, I was reading an article today. I think I shared it with, with you is the, the just explosion of, um, securitized collectibles uh, hedge funds being raised that are allocating either solely to sports cards pokemon cards other collectibles Mm -hmm. or taking slices of their um of their uh, asset allocation and putting it towards collectibles depending on what the mandate of that strategy is but i think that i think that what's really cool is that for people out there who you know maybe they're like you know, hey, I love Pokemon, but I hate having stuff. There are a lot of options to get a little piece of the action um, via securitized collectibles, right? I've told you about, you know, some of the the apps I've used. So, uh, so pretty a pretty significant, you know, I I I made what I would call a a pure investment in Pokemon in in June of 2020. And I have been using an app called rally road since 2017 or 18, maybe. And it's, this is not a plug. I I mean, I've met the guys (laughs) who run it, but they, they've got no idea who I am and I don't even remember their names, but they were cool. Um, But it's, it's basically an app that was founded on investing in um, securitized vintage cars. So the first asset I ever purchased on there as an investment was a Lotus E Spirit, uh, which is the, if you've ever seen the movie <laughs> Pretty, Pretty Woman, it's the car in that movie, that model, right? So um, I know very little about vintage cars, but I know there's a lot of opportunity there. And they have subsequently expanded to, um, you know, they've got the Onus Wagner car, they've got uh, yeah. watches and wine and all sorts of different sports memorabilia and they own all these physical assets in in you know a vault vault, several vaults basically they i don't know if secret locations. secret locations secret locations <laughs> they, they planned on having events to like go see you know the oh items, cool like, for like a museum yeah 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 so i don't know if those actually ever happened and obviously like the pandemic through a whole whole loop in that but yeah Yeah. so you know no one listening will be able to see this but this is um actually a stock certificate for the snorlax yes the snorlax stock certificate so it's a 1999 base set first edition psa 10 complete set um and they issued this set in 2020 in june Uh, at a valuation of $125,000 on the set. And, you know, I know you're having Jeremy on the podcast, and I've heard him talk about this with his master set is,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, I did the math, right? And I was like, hey, these cards individually are worth more than 125k. And there's a lot of there's a lot of upside potential here from that valuation on that full set all in PSA 10s. I mean, that's, I don't know how many master sets are truly out there that are owned by one singular person, but I can't imagine it's that many. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: And he was saying something too. Oh, I was going to say, he was saying something too, that the upside on those, like he spent around 125 ish is what he said. Yeah. I heard him say in one interview and when he priced it out, it was worth something close to seven, 800 K for all wow. of them. Yeah. Which I thought was crazy. So, I mean, going back huh. to your point, that was a good yeah, choice on your I part. I thought it
1: was worth like <laughs> two fifty. you know, in June, I was like, Hey, this is probably worth double this at least. And I just, you know, I had wanted to step more meaningfully into, into Pokemon, but it gave me a, a really easy way to do that without having mm-hmm. to like buy a bunch of like stuff and have it. Right. <laughs> so at that point, right. Where I was like, I obviously I was still collecting and I, and I had, you know, things I had collected over the years and, and, you know, made more significant moves later in, in the fall um, of 2020 as well. Um, but I got really fortunate with that because now, you know, we'll see it actually trades this week. So it trades like mm, every quarter or so there's like the ability to buy and sell shares of the set. But the last valuation they had on it was 750k. So that's a 6x on investment, right? And, And I've seen, you know, some good returns on other, you know, items that I've invested in on that app, whether it's cars or sports memorabilia or what have you that I just thought were interesting um I've I've slowed my I don't really do much buying on there anymore I invested in a uh they had a Kangaskhan trophy card that they Mm. IPO'd and I thought that was that was a cool one because I'm never going to be able to own a trophy card myself but I think it's pretty unique um but because of the massive popularity obviously things I like have like obviously increase in value to a point where I don't know if it's necessarily a great pure investment play from a securitized collectible standpoint. Like I'd like to own it, but maybe not as like an investment like that, where I don't actually have the physical asset to enjoy. Um, Mm. So I've been kind of just kind of letting those, those ride, but there's a lot of opportunity there. You know, I've done the same thing with securitized art for example, with someone like cause, who's a, a modern artist that I, that I really enjoy that, you know, I, I could never buy one of his items really uh, whether it's a sculpture or a painting or what have you, or some of the cross branding he does. Um, but I had the opportunity to purchase a, you know, a securitized piece of his art to own a nice. slice. Right. Yeah. So, and, and art's been a, been a really unique asset class and, you know, my, uh, my mom's a big art collector, so I've kind of grown up. I have a lot of art on my walls as well, some of it <laughs> valuable, some of it not. But it's—I really enjoy art. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have a—I have a specific taste, things I really like, and that's—that's that's really how I view, honestly. And I know people disagree with this, but that's how I view Pokemon in a lot of ways. It's art um, in a lot of ways for me, um, which is why I especially like um a lot of the japanese items because one they're more accessible from a price point standpoint two i think they have uh, some significant upside potential and and three i think the language really complements the artwork really well in a way Mm -hmm. that's maybe less childish and nostalgic than the english but really uh has this cool flow with the with the art on it hits on, different on visual card it does right? <laughs> yeah. it
0: totally does you know I, I i love that you're so into japanese cards because i didn't really know too much um about them but i like i thought a few of them were cool and then you slowly introduced me to all these other Well, obviously all of the Japanese versions of all the English sets, but then, you know, even the pre-English sets, all the vending series and whatnot. And honestly, going back to what you were saying about how you see upside for a lot of Japanese cards, I I couldn't agree with you more. And and that's why I've been kind of focused on a little bit of a pocket of, okay, which Japanese sets had the lowest pops? okay, now which ones are the oldest and the rarest, you know, because when cards get to a certain age, you know, in terms of the 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 age of the set, the population's charts aren't going to move by that much, right? So the top suns, right. you know, um, and even some some of the vending series, which is why I've been kind of putting my last biggest purchases were honestly from those sets, because like that Charizard, it's like a, it's like a one of ten or a one of twelve. You know, the other three cards yeah. that I bought that were vending series five. You know, they were all you know one of twelves, one of thirteens, and stuff like that. I don't know, have any idea, you know, how many, you know, more tens out there there are that are just waiting to be discovered. But, I mean, that's a great way to kind of like, in 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 my eyes, mitigate your risk between you know buying something that's cool that you like, like but then also buying something that is rare and then also I guess on a third point buying something that's a little bit more accessible because the Top Sun cards, the blue grass the blue backs, even the green backs, some of them are just, you know, I, I can't <laughs> I can't afford those at this point. Yeah. Um but even some of the the Bondi Prism cards, um I was looking at the Mewtwo. We were talking about the Mewtwo the other day. And as a PSA 10, I'm like, Ugh. I don't know.
1: <laughs> like
0: I don't know if I want to be doing that. I don't know if I want to be buying that. Um,
1: but yeah, you know, I just picked up that that PSA nine Machamp. Um, gosh,
0: yeah. And I yeah. like.
1: I mean, it it was it was like 130 bucks. Like I, I felt like for that old and scarce of a card that looks that cool, I I felt okay with that entry point, right? Mm-hmm. Um. And I think what's super interesting about a lot of those, especially a lot of the non TCG cards, is yeah, there's the pops are pretty low, and there's only so much of it raw probably still out there. I mean, yeah, there's like you just saw in the last PWCC auction, there was a there was a Topsoon sealed like booster box, right? But I think like I think those packs, like I've seen people open them. I'm pretty sure they're like two or three card little packs and they have gum in them kind of like the old uh oh, old baseball cards i yeah. think and uh i have to i have to double check on on that but that's what i what i seem to remember and it's like who knows what the quality is in there if you're opening a pack like that so where there is you know risk to hey all these you know and this is a reason why i know you and i are big fans of first edition and shadowless all these people ripping unlimited booster boxes of stuff like you're going to drive the pops up on everything because you know that in this era, everyone who's buying into those brakes, they are getting those cars. They're sending them off to PSA because they want them in slabs. They're packed fresh. They think they're all going to be tens and they don't realize that the centering on their freaking, you know, dugong (laughs) is so far to the left that it's going to get an OC or an or like a seven, like they just—I yeah. don't know, yeah, not a seven, but you know what I mean. Like it's just, <laughs> it's just this, like, it's irrational in a lot of ways. Um, the way people are are navigating a lot of parts of the market, to to say the least, and and even on those. Um, so those those pieces of of the hobby that are more scarce, that are more unique the risks are that they're too niche, or that they're, you know, hey, they're not in English, so they're not going to pull that nostalgia. But I think there's back to something we started the conversation with is, you know, there's collectors in the hobby who are going to start to really rotate to be looking for far more unique items. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And some of those items that are underappreciated now that aren't the glitzy charizard from base set um, could be could be something that that's an interesting area to focus on you know i personally think that the top soon and the bandai Cardass vending cards are are beautiful cards um there are still some raw that are of very good quality that you can find i've had very good luck um from Japan there's a lot of bad ones out there though and it takes a lot more effort wow. because of the way the cards look in my opinion that you you really have to like zoom in on those photos really well because there's mm-hmm. not that like easy way to see like hey there's whitening on a very dark edge that's easy to see the the corners the creases there's weird warpings that happen with those cards raw so it's a lot of risk right mm-hmm. um, but those those certainly are gaining in popularity but are still i think under appreciated um there's the the meiji like you know, however you pronounce that like the ones that came from like the chocolate boxes yeah. those cards mm-hmm. you know uh jake from pokonomics just did a did a great video on those um those are super beautiful
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: really great art um there's even like the vending sticker cards. I don't know if you've ever seen those. I actually just got some like in a in a package like as a freebie from an eBay seller, and they're really really cool. They're like mini shiny versions of all the like uh, original like base through gym uh, Japanese cards. They're really. Oh, that's cool really fine. fun. They just came from you know they came from vending machines in Japan, so
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, they're they're really unique. Um, not saying those will catch on necessarily but what what i'm saying is there's some beautiful art on a lot of these more niche sets that could certainly be have have greater appreciation in the future by by collectors and that that creates the opportunity now if you're willing to do the work Mm
0: -hmm. so yeah and and going back to um You you know, I mean, going back to what we were talking about, we focus on getting things that we like, like that's the first thing that we focus on. So you're right with getting, getting into these smaller pockets of niches, um, we run the risk of buying something that we like, but that may not appreciate that well over time. But, you know, I'm hoping that as people just in general, get more educated, and then we have more content creators that come out who really know these pockets of the market really well. I mean, really honestly, and, you know, I don't know, this is just a hunch. This is just my thought and, and feel free to completely disagree. But I think a lot of that just comes down to education. You know, I had no idea that those vending series cards even existed until you told me. And then when you told me, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to buy that. And, and so I feel like even though it's a niche, like I, I just kind of feel like as the market just becomes more educated on these sets, that would be when we start to see those types of cards really appreciate. But also the yeah, other I thing. Can... Yeah. Oh, go ahead.
1: No, I was gonna say I can agree with that for certain.
0: hmm And and the other thing too that I kinda of thought of with getting the vending series cards. And I'm like, okay, let me prioritize the the LeBrons and the MJs of the Pokemon, which is the Pikachu's and the Charizards. Um just because You know, like what you were saying, we do have those collectors, those true collectors that want to get the master sets of all the Pikachus or all the Mewtwos or the Kadabras or the Charizards. And so when you have those collectors, um, they're obviously probably, you know, this is obviously an assumption, but an educated assumption that they have more liquidity or ability to buy those cards. Because if you got someone who's trying to chase a master Charizard set, like, they've got to have cash in order to make that happen. Right. But that was a part of the reason why I did end up getting the Charizard and the Pikachu card, not just because it was both of them in the same card and, and whatnot, and not just because it was a very low pop and it was a PSA 10 minty minty card, but also I'm thinking, okay, so not that I plan on selling it, but if I ever need to, or want to in the future, um, you know, those collectors are still out there and, those are cards that I could still sell at some point uh, to get my cash back, and and I mean it's definitely probably not going to be an easy sell. Like those, it, finding those those buyers are are hard, uh, and going back to your other point, which is your cards aren't really worth that until like the money is in your account. Right. So, so making those sales happen can be kind of tough, but that that's a part of my thought and why I decided to to go in on that card specifically, because it's, it's a Charizard card with the Pikachu. It's at a, a price that I can mostly afford, you know, I can't just go in I can't just go in on, you know, a first edition, but that doesn't also mean I want to get like a PSA six unlimited Charizard, right? Even though that, I don't even know how much that is at the moment, but even though that's assumedly cheaper than the PSA nine or the 10 or, you know, the eight or the seven, I still don't want that card because it's still an unlimited card, right? So what is a really unique card? Ha, that one, the series. You know, yeah,
1: and it wasn't like you bought one with like a cocoon and a seal on it that's gonna be you know really hard to move if you ever do need to sell it right, so I think that's that is again you know back to that conversation a way to you know something I have focused on as a collector is is mitigating some of the risk by uh collecting uh characters from the series that are well loved that in in my allocation that's more like some you know upside potential investment type area right like obviously i'm going to collect what i like and if no one wants my you know giovanni's machoke that's fine (laughs) um but i've got a pretty good good feeling about you know I mean, shoot, even like a, a Snorlax card, right? I look at that card and I think about playing Pokemon Yellow and running into that freaking thing in the middle of the road and not being able to pass and having to go through all the rigmarole of how do I how do I wake up the Snorlax and
2: mm-hmm. you know
1: that that hits and, and so do obviously the starters, especially like if you were like me and and grew up playing Pokemon Yellow, you know, Pikachu is just you know there's something different and special about that and and arguably he's he's the most popular character in the hobby right and has has really endured the the test of time and is is loved by most of all ages you know within the hobby um so there's there's certainly some safety in that in 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 making investments in cards that have characters that are that are well loved right mm-hmm. um or that are you know have unique unique artworks um of well-loved characters, so.
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I-, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and then, so I guess, like as far as um so I guess, as far as Japanese sets, mm-hmm. what are some specific Japanese sets that you think are underappreciated, um but then also are a bit more accessible right now?
1: So I'll start with sealed product. So vintage and full disclaimer, full disclosure, I own most of the things I'm going to talk about. So it might seem like I'm pumping my own stuff, but it's because I believe in it. Um, I still think actually, you know, I don't know if you follow um Sakari on on YouTube or Instagram, but he actually just put out a great video today talking about some of the things he had looked at in the past that you know, how those uh, investment theses had played out. And one of the things he talked about- I
0: need to watch that last, video.
1: Yeah, it's a great video. So he he basically referenced his video from July. And one of the things he talked about were vintage Japanese booster packs, um, which were probably, you know, $75 to $100 at that time. And now they're in the range of, you know, they're around 200 for most of the standard non-base boosters. Um, but anyway, I, I digress. The I think that, you know, those sealed boosters, especially things like jungle and fossil and team rocket, the gym series into Neos that guarantee you a hollow in every pack. I can see, you know, at these price entry points, still, there being a ton of people who say, Hey, I'm willing to spend that on a pack to rip. Um, I've seen it, I've seen it with, with friends of mine and people that I've introduced to Japanese that are like, you know, they want that guaranteed hollow hit. Um, you know, I'm someone who likes to keep things sealed and, and own them in, in, in the safe, (laughs) in the safe with a few on display. Uh Um, but I think that, you know, I still think there's a ton of Uh, upward potential in, in those booster packs. I, I understand why English is far more loved, right? I understand that, you know, people had that nostalgic pull, they can read, they can see what's on the card. But the fact is, is that the Japanese cards were the first cards, and they are of higher print quality. They guarantee you a hollow in a lot of those packs the artworks are phenomenal if you look at the hollows on an english card versus a japanese card there there's some more nuances and quality to the japanese ones i mean this is my bias but that's just what i believe so i do think that you know even today like even today like i got one in the mail today which i got to reach out to the seller because they sent me the wrong one but uh
2: you know no, I'm still that's
1: the worst. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, it's not the heat biggest deal. so there's a there's a difference in the wrapper from when they changed the tax rate in Japan. So there's a lot of boosters that are uh, say two ninety one yen on the front, and then they they transition to three hundred. and that's when they change the tax rates in Japan to my to my understanding. But they already had like a ton of them printed, obviously. So there's this like weird transition point. Um, I think during gym challenge where it flips uh, over. And then after that, I think through the Neo sets, they're all 300 yen. But the the seller sold me in the listing 291 yen. And I got in the mail today into 300 yen. And I'm like, how did you like do you have like seven of these? And you just didn't know which one was water? Yeah, but you know, mm-hmm. typical, but um, like, I'm still a buyer of those even today. Because I think that they're great to have at this price point for one or two more in certain parts of my my collection um i certainly think that uh for for non-sealed items some of the non-tcg cards we've talked about bandai card ass top sun are gaining a lot more popularity um, but there's still accessible accessible cards, even in even in you know PSA or CGC or Beckett slabs that are that are uh, attainable uh, for the for the average investor certainly to make you know one or two purchases on items they really love. Um, and I think that you know again it's kind of what you said. All it takes is you know one or two uh, influencers to grasp onto a certain certain area of the market um or one big purchase to be made uh for that to really change the the narrative on a certain part of the hobby so i mean i just i personally love those cards i think there's a lot of opportunity there i mean i think generally that that they're they're underloved um broadly you know japanese vintage and then there's a lot of interesting cards as you get into like the ex era um or even just before that into like uh the um the versus series which is super interesting and i was listening to a uh like A Q&A yesterday and uh, someone asked about japanese first edition cards uh which first appeared in the versus series um but it was a false first edition because there were no unlimited cards they were only printed with first edition stamps on them and the the youtuber who i will not name said yeah i think anything with a first edition stamp you know people are going to want that's probably a great buy and that just you know it it reinforced something i think about a lot which is I think there's an undereducation around Japanese cards and people are probably going to buy things with a first edition stamp just because it has a first edition on it, even if the unlimited are more rare or there wasn't an unlimited. Right. So there's there's a lot of undereducation there, which which could buoy some of that market for a short period of time, I suppose. But um, it also set off some warning bells because there's certainly just a huge level of undereducation and risk there. Right. So. Um, but I think that, I think that some of those cards are really interesting. And then there are kind of sets of artwork that were proliferated throughout, um, whether it was the VHS intro set or the, um, the, the vending series, um, not like the Bandai card S vending series but the like the peeled cards that we've talked about mm, that come on yeah. them, the vending the vending sheets so i think how it worked is like you would you would either like trade in a coin or put something in a machine then you could get the sheet i i forget exactly how it, how it worked i forget the history but um i think there's a lot of opportunity there um for For anyone looking to get into into japanese sets there's some great artwork there's some really unique cards um there's still you know unpeeled vending sheets out there and raw cards to be found all across the internet um and i think that they're just uh they have a lot of potential still um and i don't think that they will I don't think that they will ever necessarily have the same price points as US cards or English cards. Like, I don't think a PSA 10 no rarity base set Charizard will necessarily ever have the same price point as a PSA 10 first edition English Charizard. Mm-hmm. But I think on like a relative value basis, if I, had, if I was forced to buy one today, I would buy the Japanese no rarity all day long because I think that the upside potential is there. Whereas with a first edition PSA 10 Charizard, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how many more, you know, all time highs in the short to medium term we're going to see on a card like that. You know, you heard Gary talk about it too. You know, Gary almost thinks the prices on that are overextended, which is really interesting to hear from him. Um, do I think in their, in our lifetimes, it could be a million dollar card? Yeah. Possibly. But, over how many years with, you know, what is the, what's the, you know, average annual return on that when you extrapolate it out over the next very many years before it potentially gets to that price point, right? After inflation, what was your real return? Right. So if it, you know, if it three X's from here, but you know, inflation runs at whatever and it takes 50 years you know what was the really return profile of that versus something that has more upside potential and could still be beloved so those Mm -hmm. are those are some of my thoughts on on the Japanese sets for sure
0: that's um yeah you've definitely given us a lot there that's going to be its own segment I'm going to just Put that into a YouTube video for us.
2: Like,
0: <laughs> put that in there. But, um, so then, then with all of that said, what is your buying strategy for 2021? Then,
1: sure. So, you know, I think I started the year, uh, continuing to look for uh, sealed boosters at at the right price, and then generally raw cards that i could grade myself um i've sent three submissions this year i think to the various grading companies um i have a fourth one that i'll probably do depends when these cards show up from japan there's one shipment that's taking a long time so probably next month um are those
0: the um what were you telling me did you just buy some tops on what was it uh, the top scene lot is they're, that the one
1: they their bandai card ass um it's like a lot of like 15 cards that i, That's I was, was looking for i was looking for so i i'm an evolution person so i was looking to to raw to grade my own set of evolution bandai card ass cards so um Eevee and then jolteon flareon and vaporeon and they it was becoming very hard to find the um the Jolteon I was having a tough time with, I think. And I ended up finding it in this lot. And it looked like one of the best cards in the lot. And most of the cards except for like two or three looked to be to my grading criteria. Um so I went ahead and, and pulled the trigger on the lot. Um and there were there was a couple, there were like a pair of lapras in there, which I love that character. So um that to be said, I I'm being far more selective now than I was with my raw cards because of the increases in grading prices that we're seeing, and I'm sure we're going to see, because it goes back to that, you know, entry point is really important. So if before I was paying $5 for a Card that could potentially PSA eight or higher, maybe a nine. Let's say it was a nine, I paid five bucks for it or seven bucks, whatever, five bucks. And before it cost me, you know, 10 bucks to grade it. That's a cost basis of 15. But now if my grading cost is, you know, 20, that changes the game on where that entry point has to go. Right. So um, I think that, you know, for me personally, for my, For my personal collection, um, I'm being super selective with how I buy raw cards today. I think where I've transitioned my strategy a little bit is that I am continuing to look at CGC 9.5s, especially with subgrades, um, but not just with subgrades, and really taking a hard look at the card and seeing what I truly think it would be maybe in a, in a PSA slab and looking at some of the relative valuation there. Um, I've become incredibly bullish on CGC and we can, we can talk about the grading companies a bit if you want, because I think it plays very you know importantly into my investment strategy this year. Um, so I am being very selective. My buying has certainly slowed and because you can't just spend into oblivion, right? You, You know, this can only be a certain percentage of your of your disposable income at any given time. Um, and there's a lot that's gonna happen this year with the twenty-fifth anniversary. There's gonna be a lot of, you know, I'm not a big modern guy, but it is fun to grab something and rip it and and enjoy that feeling. So you wanna have capital available for that, of course. Um, but I think that. You know, looking at some of those CGC slabs, I'm really impressed with how much they've improved the quality of the slab itself of the case. I hmm. think that and I know you know who you know people out there have different you know opinions on all the on all the grading companies, but I think that they're the customer service, the ease easy use of the website, the ability to add pedigrees, subgrades, the um, the ability to give an immense amount of detail on the label, uh, note errors, note the correct you know set, have it actually say you know base set uh, for example for versus sure. PSA, which is like 1999 Pokemon game or whatever. Um, but <laughs> I think that uh, I think that a bet on CGC is a bit of a bet on the future of like the grading area. Um, and taking a bet on kind of a new and up-and-coming card grading company that's been well-established in other areas of collectibles like, um, like comics for a long time. Um, and that offers a very, you know, approachable price point on cards with subgrades. Um, you know, all day long through my middleman, now it's increased, but I can still grade cards there for... Twenty dollars with subgrades, which mm-hmm. is is a pretty attractive price point in today's market, um, especially with now to get a Beckett uh, card graded with subgrades is like thirty five bucks. Um, they 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 hit, hit everyone with that mid month price increase, which is interesting. Um, and then obviously PSA is the cheapest, but you don't get the don't get the subgrades. It's a little more lenient of a of a grading company uh, compared to the others. Does have quality slabs, but for me, it's been you know taking a look, a hard look at cards I really want and seeing what they're going for in some of those CGC slabs, um, and pulling the trigger selectively on them because I think that at the end of the day, whether it's raw or it's in a a slab, you got to buy the card. And so true. If I see a CGC 9 and a PSA 9 of the same card, and to me, the centering looks better on one, one's got a swirl versus the other in the hollow, you know, taking a look at all the front and back and any like dings there might be or what have you, any of the corners, looking at the card itself, I'm going to buy the better card especially if they're price points and that's i think how you have to approach it especially now um because i think that's a really old school too like collector collectors are going to look at it from that perspective you you ha- i think you have to because there's going to be you know yes i like to buy low pop cards but there's just going to be there's going to be more slabs out there i mean we are in an era where people are just grading everything. There's going to be a ton yeah. of slabs out there, and you know, graders. You know, obviously CGC's a little different with some of the algorithm and computer analysis they do on the centering and such. But graders are human, and there are cards that are going to slip through the cracks that are going to get. You know, I'm I'm kind of a nine collector myself. Uh, I don't I don't mind owning the nine instead of the ten, uh, especially if it's just like a little bit of centering or something. Like I just. Yeah. For me, there seems to be a very small difference when it comes to that. Um, but I think that like if there's gonna be a lot of cards out there and you gotta just you gotta buy the card. Things will slip through, cards will get nines that should have gotten eights, cards will get tens that should have gotten nine point fives, cards will get eights that should have gotten sevens, and it's just gonna happen. And and you really like. It amazes me that people will put up listings or people will buy cards, um, in slabs that have no back pictures. Yeah. Like, first of all, if it's CGC, you can't even look at the certification because it's on the back Two, like, you have to buy the card. Like you have no idea what that card's going to look like. You have no idea what the case is going to look like. So, um, that's that's definitely been my been my strategy um and then then beyond that it's uh it's looking at some of the um more modern japanese sets like tag team gx for example that my buddy turned me on to um became a at least right now it looks like a really great investment from what we did you know buying a few boxes at a pretty low cost basis but i think there's some really really interesting i've been looking at this box called dream league that was part of a part of sun and moon um that has like those uh full art character cards like the um like the the red with the pikachu card if you've seen that ash or red with pikachu and this really cool um coughing card as well there's just some cool like full arts that i think may hold some popularity especially with i think how hard they're going to be to grade uh, and keep keeping pristine quality so i've been looking at some of those modern japanese sets that you know at the end of the day if i bought a box for 60 bucks and you know i keep it stashed away and it doesn't end up being worth more at least i've got something with a pretty low basis that i can rip you know like mm-hmm. and it's you could still have so, the fun so. of it yeah yeah exactly so so that's really my, you know, my strategy this year. I think that with all the hype around the 25th anniversary with everything going on obviously with Logan and a lot of other people and in, in coming into the hobby, you just got to be super selective. Like the ship has sailed on a lot of opportunities, <laughs> right? Seriously. Like it it really just has it goes back to that like I'm not going to pay 10-year-out prices for something. Like I will wait 5 years to 10 years to own a card when it's at a reasonable price point, you know, it's a $250 card today. And I think I should be paying a hundred bucks for it. I'll wait five years until it's still 250. And then I'll, you know, consider buying it.
0: Or you will just lowball the seller.
1: So this is so true. (laughs) This is so true. And then I'll get it returned for, for free and get to keep it anyway. So, oh man, I've had some funny eBay ebay uh stuff happening you
0: you definitely have the funniest ebay stories in my opinion like the worst luck but then also the best luck like i know it's so strange
1: (laughs) it's super 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 strange so yeah that um that set that Mew rainbow island southern island set that sad about it free Yeah, I know. So the yeah, well, there was yeah the one that I had to send back, but then the one that they they refunded me and said no, you can just keep it. Um, Oh yeah, yeah. It was a really interesting like Japanese cultural phenomenon. Like I feel like they were ashamed that they sold it to me because they got duped by a Japanese shop. Mm Hmm. Um, But like I just got three great cards to send in to grade for free, which is kind of cool. So, um. You know, it, it all blends into that, you know, what's your cost basis, you know, on the multiple sealed Southern Island sets I have, but uh, uh, if only yeah. I had English, you guys, like yeah, that. so yeah, I think, I think I think it's being super duper selective on any buys right now. I mean, you just have to be the market's too hot. There's too much hype. Um I think that getting back to the roots of looking for stuff on in local, you know, Mm -hmm. local stores, or like yesterday, I picked up a couple of holographic cards at like a little like flea market store, like the entry point was fine, but it was nice to see them in person and get to evaluate them. Just being really slow and deliberate with, with what you're investing in um, I think is going to be extremely important in a year where, It just seems that everything is overhyped.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I would agree with that. Um, You know, it's going to cool off. Like, it's going to happen. It's going to hit a plateau. I I mean, a lot of crazy things are going to happen come the 27th. That is for sure. We're going to see a lot of movement, which will be really interesting to watch. But, you know, considering the price points that we're at on a lot of things right now, you gotta be real chill. Just hang in there. Like what you said, you know, you're willing to wait five, 10 years on a car that you think should be a hundred, but it's going right now for two fifty. I can understand that because you've got to be really protective of of your price points. I mean, even going back to, um, you know, your cost basis for getting cards graded with the, impre- the increased prices of, uh, you know, the cost to grade, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're going for 15 to 20 bucks, yeah, five bucks doesn't seem like all that much, but it is 25 pre- or no, it is one third of the price that it was previously. So, you know, I mean like even though, and then on top of that multiples, you know, depending on how many you actually get graded. Cause you know, for us, we're talking about, you know, in the future over the next few years, probably getting hundreds of cards graded. So that's going to add so much to your cost basis and people really need to watch out.
1: Yeah. I try to, I try to at this point, limit each individual submission I do to like, somewhere in that 300 to 500 range of grading cost, because you have to Mm -hmm. tear it out, right? Because you don't want to be hit with all those costs at one time. And you you just have to think about that, like, that's an inherent cost of the hobby, if you're if you're going that route, but it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's super fun to send in cards to get graded. Um, It's, it's super fun to hunt for raw cards. And it makes the hobby super enjoyable in a lot of ways it's a you know my buddy really turned me on to this is i have become much more like calculated with the way i review my raw cards like i build out a spreadsheet i do my grade guesses across the four major categories centering surface corners edges um and then i at least do that and my grade guess before i send it in and then eventually, mm-hmm. by the time that the cards will be coming back, I'll have built, you know, an inherent, you know, value of that card at that grade versus my cost basis and see what the ROI is. Um, but I am being very, very selective and thoughtful with how I how I do those submissions as well, right? Because you can't just send everything. I mean, yeah. yeah, I think a lot of people are doing that. And they're just gonna, you know, Yes, pop reports are going to go up, but there's going to be a lot of like, I was talking to my, the guy he used for middlemanning, uh, Canto Shark, who's great, who I first connected with for uh, pack displays. And then he now he does middlemanning as well. He lives right by Beckett. And, uh, you know, he and I, he and I were talking about this. He's like, yeah, I've seen a lot of like five, three to fives like coming through yeah. on submissions because people just are pulling out their, you know, it's the, Pandemic thing, right? People pulled out from their attic their old sets, whether it's sports cards or Pokemon, and they're just sending them into PSA regardless. And it's got a giant crease in it and a bunch of whitening on the back, and they just don't know any better. And it's funny because I feel like we are very strict with our grading criteria, but it helps because we own slabs, right? So we can see, hey, I know what a nine, a seven, a six, Uh, 9876 are and it helps you kind of build those standards in your head and then it's always it's always better to err on the side of caution and just be super super strict and reasonable with how you think something's going to grade because at the end of the day um, it's not going to be worth all the cost if you're just kidding yourself on know how it's going to grade right so Mm -hmm. for
0: sure you know what's funny is uh you might really appreciate this comparison but I kind of compare it to um when people are trying to guess their body fat percentage (laughs) like and and they think you know okay well I'm an athlete um, you know, I'm, I'm at like an 8% or 7% body fat. And, right. and you and I both know that an athlete cannot function on that kind of that low of a body fat percentage. It is not I mean it's not easy to get to really low body fat percentages especially any yeah. uh, anything under 10%. So you know what they say is is uh, guess your guess your body fat percentage and add like 5 to 10% and that's where you're yeah. actually at. So with cards it you know makes
1: me laugh when I like <laughs> think of like uh, Ronnie Coleman in his like it was either a couple of interviews or documentaries he was like you basically claim to have a negative body fat. And I'm like, you don't know how this works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah seriously. you're right. You're so right. People, you know, it is very hard to be, to be, you know, uh, realistic with yourself when you're in a hobby or in a activity that you really love and want to like, see a lot of like growth and opportunity out of and and, and you tend to to kid yourself, if you're not really disciplined, right, it comes Mm -hmm. down, you know, to discipline. And I think that's, you know, something that has proliferated, you know, across my life, whether it's my career, or when I was in school, or different certifications I've studied for or bodybuilding or hobby collecting, is you 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 just have to be disciplined, and you have to be realistic with yourself. or else you're just going to end up being disappointed. Like mm-hmm. it will end. It will end in tears. It will. You know, it's the same thing we talked about with some of these uh, stock market undulations lately. Um, <laughs> but we won't. We won't go there. But it, uh-huh. at the end of yeah. the day, it comes down to you have to be real with yourself. You know, mm-hmm. it's.
0: Yeah. And and the other thing too that I mean we've talked about it. We go on streams and we're looking at cards and we're guessing the grades. But even in my head, even though I'm like, ooh, this one could get a 10, you know, if I'm sending that out, I'm still emotionally saying to myself you know, it's a possible nine at the end of the day, like it, it could be a nine, it could be an eight. So I would rather like expect the nines and the eights and the sevens rather than like emotionally expect the tens and be incredibly disappointed when it wasn't really necessary, you know, to put yourself through that emotional stress. Um, you know, when yeah, you get yourself back.
1: My spreadsheet. I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've self-graded anything in a 10 honestly um like maybe maybe one or two and maybe that's just rightfully so and i don't have any tens but i just you know i'd rather err on the side of of caution and and reality than pumping myself up you know on on something that you know it's just a fun hobby right like it just it makes it makes the hobby super enjoyable it's you know the chase is part of it right there's there's certain uh there's certain you know Endorphin rushes you get from, you know, finding a really great card raw and getting it in the mail and it just looks fantastic. I mean, there is something about that that just makes everything in in the hobby really, really worth it and makes it so enjoyable. Um, Mm -hmm. But you got to be, you got to be real with yourself sometimes. 100%. I totally agree.
2: Yeah. You
0: know, talking about surprises. And you know like kind of talking yourself up with what you've got and then being let down. Um, uh, so the Logan sealed products that are coming out and that are being auctioned for forty thousand dollars that are gonna get like same day grading, right? I think that's what it is. same day grading. and then the special PSA tens get the special labels um, right for oh, Logan gosh. box breaks. So so I'm kind of curious what, what kind of effect do you think that that will have on the hobby good and bad you know cuz i'm sure there's probably a mix of the two
1: so i think that i think that things like you know what logan paul's doing how involved steve aoki's become um a few of these other influencers i think that i think that some of those things i think that you know especially logan specifically it'll have a net positive on the hobby um I think Logan Paul from watching where he started with Pokemon to where he's come now, he's certainly become more tempered with the way he uses his words because he understands his platform better. I think Gary, you know, honestly has been a really big influence on that. I think he's been almost, it seems like from the outside looking in, you know, these are, you know they're just human, right? But I, from the outside looking in, it seems like you know, Gary's been almost somewhat of a mentor to him in a lot of this, and he's he's really started to understand how impactful uh, his words and actions can be on the hobby. Um, I think you know one of the downside risks is that because these auction prices have realized, at such high price levels, there's going to be a lot of undereducated folks in the hobby who immediately associate that with a uh, tremendous increase in value in everything across the board in the hobby. And they will either start buying or conversely, start attempting to sell things at much higher prices because, you know, basically thinking that the you know the rising tide lifts all boats
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you gotta you gotta realize like like these these pack prices are not indicative of a uh current valuation on a sealed first edition base set booster box for a collector because there is so much more associated with being a participant in this pack opening than just getting cards, right? Like for sure. is for for most people who have become involved in this, like, like the the guy who co-founded Gymshark, right? He mm-hmm. bought two packs. I'm sure there's a way, and this is, you know, undereducated maybe, but my understanding of the way people look at these with either it's it's a part of a marketing budget, or there's gonna be a very
2: interesting mm-hmm. one right
1: tax wise as an expense and take some sort of deduction against the spend. Um, And then it's, it's again, as part of that marketing budget, like you as a content creator being involved in this or being, uh, you know, any type of influencer being involved in this, there's a tremendous amount of PR that's going to be associated for you and your content by being a part of this. I mean, Mm -hmm. you are going to be a part of, um an event on the 25th anniversary date of Pokemon with one of the biggest social media influencers in you know the current social sphere of you know today of 2021. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of added value or added perceived value at least. We'll see how it plays out to making that spend on that. Um, but I think what you probably will see is I think you will see prices continue to rise in a lot of items because people are going to be demanding more because they think that has made the value of their items go up tremendously as well. And at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, that box break is far more than just about Pokemon cards. It is a way for content creators and influencers and other folks who bought into the break to gain a lot of, I don't know, clouts, you know, not just clout, but followers and potential mm-hmm. monetization of streams and posts and all the proliferation of, you know, the, the event itself, right? There's going to be a ton um, of kickback to a lot of those influencers on that spend. Um, so mm-hmm. you have got a about a lot of the inherent benefits to their brand by being involved in that break. So I think that it's it's very separate from just, you know, the price of Pokemon cards, like it is its own animal that people need to really think about uh, before they start changing their valuation thesis on things just because of this event. Um, And two, I think another thing to think about is like, people have been building up the expectation of this, right? And how markets work in in traditional financial markets, like the stock market is built on expectations of the future, right? The Mm -hmm. stock market, forward looking market, right? And I think that in the same way, you, you can see that in some parts of the Pokemon market, where people are pricing in the future growth of the hobby based on these events that are going to happen, right? So it doesn't like, I hear people saying like, oh, like after the 27th, like everything's just gonna like, pop off and everything's gonna be worth more, like, a lot of that's built into a lot of the areas of this market already, because Mm -hmm. people People look forward to that already. It's like the the news is already printed. You know it's happening. It's it's priced in. So people just need to be really careful in the way they navigate this this year with all these events. Like I'm sure he'll do more than one break this year. Um, but I I love what it's doing for the popularity of the hobby. I think that some of the complaints people have about this event and their qualms with it and whatever i think they're slightly unwarranted like i think that you know people should be allowed to just do what they want it's just social mm-hmm. media like it's just like at the end of the day it's just a bunch of freaking 20 something year olds ripping open pokemon packs like <laughs> so true it's so true it ain't that serious so I think that it's going to be a net positive for the hobby, but I think it also comes with the need to tread very carefully in Mm -hmm. how you both see the market and see the hobby and also how you take action, you know, around that.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, uh, Logan Paul not doing this box break and not putting out the video that he bought six or however many first edition sealed booster boxes is not going to stop scalpers or is not going to make scalpers scalp less. So yeah, it's going to make them
1: scalp more. I mean, it's 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 driving, and that comes back to what I said is that it's it's going to drive those scalpers to because they're the more honestly, even though. They might be more disliked. They're the more educated people, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of them, they see the writing on the wall. They know there is a lot of dumb money, excuse my you know phrase, to be taken advantage of, right? Mm-hmm. And that is just the inherent part of any market is that there are going to be people who take advantage of hype and momentum to make money. And there are going to be a lot of undereducated folks who come into the hobby, who pay obscene prices for things because they are going to get taken advantage of because they got themselves caught up in the hype. And that goes back to the idea of having to protect yourself as a student of the market and be patient and understand what you're getting yourself into. I would probably not go buy an evolutions box at a thousand bucks a box. Like things like that, that have become super overhyped are ripe for people to take a pause and think.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Unfortunately, many, many, many people don't. People just, I don't know what it is. People just really lack uh, self-awareness Uh, the ability to think critically I think that you know it's it's why there's so many people being taken advantage of in this hobby and and in a lot of other you know areas of the world which is sad but um it's much easier to just take action without thinking than to slow down and think before one acts
2: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah yeah I, I I can definitely I can definitely agree with that sentiment. And I mean, you know, you're right to give credit to the scalpers. They do see what is happening. Like what you said, they do see the writing on the wall. So it's them just taking advantage of the opportunity that they see in front of them. So, but And I mean, we'll see what actually happens. You know, come these next few weeks, or even you know, the next six months, we'll 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 see how things end up actually growing. Um, Because, you know, it's not necessarily hard for for people like us to kind of see that, you know, where the chips will probably fall. So, for example, evolutions will probably see, you know, they probably won't hold their prices, Um, but then to see what other parts grow. So I, I think I think there's obviously parts that are, are ripe to grow. But you know, I guess for this year and so far. Um, you know, do you do you kind of see any more records being hit this year as far as 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 buy records?
1: Uh,
0: or did we already hit that? Probably, probably not. I mean, I, in terms I, of we haven't hit the cap.
1: So I'm going to be really interested in what um for example the set I own a part of on Rally Road mm-hmm. it trades live this week this coming week and it's interesting because a, a a master set just sold at Golden Auctions for like 660k or something like that um which would which is a lower price than what the current Valuation on the set, you know, on this app, for example, is so. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested to see and get some kind of market data from how the bids in the ass look on the trading around that asset this week. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there are certainly the opportunity for certain items to hit higher all time highs this year. Um, it's interesting when you look at a lot of sealed product now that I think is actually trading at, you know, or selling at potentially a premium to where it should. You've even seen some cooling off of that, right? You've seen, you know, first edition jungle and fossil boxes, you know, slightly retrace in, in price. Certainly some, some things significantly you've seen, you know, uh, a retracement of you know individual cards like the lugia you know come down mm-hmm. pretty significantly but uh, part of the hobby that's difficult to um, predict when it comes to all-time highs whether it's on a card or a sealed item is you don't know what two people are going to be willing to duke it out for and bid up an item to right mm-hmm. so that for example is kind of I think what we saw with that uh that first edition Lugia that um sold at a at a record price. I think it was it was what it was the it was the second card to ever second like first edition like vintage Watsy card to sell over like a hundred K graded or something, right? I forget, but it it joined the Charizard in that in that realm and it subsequently cooled off. Uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but um you know two people at one point in time were willing to Bid for that item at that value. And that's what's so interesting about this hobby is it only takes one or two people on any singular item to make it reach another all-time high. You know, you see that a lot. Like if you if you track cards that you're interested in and you look at eBay last solds, like sometimes where things land are just really confusing in the hobby mm-hmm. right like i saw a like i saw a card i was looking at like land in a in an auction at like 85 dollars, and most of the other sales had been at and i missed it it had been at you know at least 150 175 all the listings out there are either starting auctions above 200 or buy it now's in the 225 250s Things just happen in this market because of the inefficiencies. Because it's not as seamless as something like the stock market, where it's just very fluid, very liquid. Um, these events happen. Things fall through the cracks. There's, there's, you know, things become underfollowed. Things become overhyped, and you know, both sides of the equation. And so. I certainly think there's a possibility for all-time highs to be hit on on certain items for certain. Uh how sustainable those all-time highs will be, I think, is the better question. And that is something that is incredibly difficult uh to to be able to, to predict. So I think you could see it in some of the some of the rare items too, some of the trophy cards. Um I think what's interesting is you're seeing, I think you're really starting people to see you know things like with like first edition heavy boosters from the english sets like hey it makes more sense to me for me just to go out and buy the slab of the one card i want from that pack rather than play you know pack roulette right like like i don't think I don't think that buying packs to rip is a very good strategy, especially at those price points. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. And we're
1: seeing, like, if you track these, you you're, we're seeing that dislocation in the market. Now we're seeing, um, cause I track like the relative value of like trophy slabs or like chase card slabs to their pack mm-hmm. prices. And we're seeing a dislocation here where, like the valuations on these packs are just not warranted based on what the underlying cards are trading at. And so I think you're going to see people rotate away and just say, Hey, I really want like, a you know, I don't know, a Snorlax from jungle first edition. And Mm -hmm. instead of me buying a first edition pack, I'm just going to save a bunch of money. I'm going to go find that card in a nine and I'm going to buy that. I'm going to own it in my collection. Um, I don't like. I said I don't think that buying packs, vintage packs to rip, is a good strategy. I think that there is some, there are potential for good returns in that at various places in the market. Like I opened a vintage Japanese jungle booster pack this year to celebrate 2020 being over, and (laughs) it's the first acceptable. The first. First vintage pack I've ever opened for my collection. Uh, I pulled a holographic pincer, an EV, and a Pikachu. Call it maybe getting lucky with the commons, but even that pincer graded uh, will probably be about worth the pack. Um, so there are like certain parts of the market where the relative value of the graded card compared to the pack is really uh, attractive. But I mm-hmm. think in the English first editions, we're seeing some of that stuff get overextended uh, when it comes to the sealed product, which is super interesting. I think uh, to just keep tabs on. So some things may hit all-time highs, but some things may see significant retraces, and I think that's what happens in a hobby that's extremely heterogeneous, right? Both from a type of investment, right, sealed versus you know individual cards, and then across you know all the all the different eras. So that's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot more going on under the hood than you might just see from the headlines of what's happening in the hobby. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. My opinion, I, my take.
0: Yeah, I, I can definitely understand that because, um, is some of the things that you've talked about have been actually topics brought up in, uh, Magic the Gathering too. So, you know, we all of a sudden see uh, booster boxes creep up to a few hundreds of dollars. But then when you look at the cards individually in the set, there aren't that many high-priced cards. So, you know, like what's going on here? What are the dynamics? Um, and well, even, and-
1: with, even with XY, right, even with evolutions, like the the individual packs haven't moved in the same way the sealed boxes are and yes there's got to be a premium for like that that factory seal on the box there is something to be said Mm -hmm. for that especially as a collector but you haven't seen like the individual packs or the the um you know some of those items that have like you know like a promo card and a coin and a couple a couple you know packs in there from various places you haven't seen those things rise in price the same way true true um so it's in, it's interesting that you say that about about magic it's something I know nothing about <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it's I don't know i I wonder if maybe some of it comes down to the clout I guess of owning a booster box because that's a really good point because I do myself, have some, uh, sealed hidden fates boxes like that, that I've just bought. And I just haven't opened because I thought maybe I should, I don't have, to, I don't have a reason to open it. Why open it? Um, so, I mean, I definitely didn't necessarily buy them as an investment per se, but, uh, you know, I would think without having looked at the prices, um, in six months, I don't think they're faring as much as the ETBs were for Hidden Fates, you know? Um, I mean, because we haven't seen those on the shelves for quite some time now. Um, Other than the actual reprint, like reprint aside before that time, we hadn't seen the ETBs for a while. So I I don't know if it, it comes down to a clout kind of thing. Um, And I can't remember the particular influencer I was listening to. I can't remember what he had mentioned as far as like his theory behind, you know, why, why sets were doing those things but um i really need to get more into the history of the markets with magic the gathering because there are a lot of things that have been happening with pokemon that have already happened with magic and so um and so I, I I feel like I want to really look at those markets just to you know hopefully be able to use it as some kind of way to see around the corner because what what happens right now with Magic the Gathering is you know at, at least for like the very like the good cards in all of those sets whether vintage or more modern but probably, probably maybe more vintage you know all of those things have been absorbed in collections and. Um, Collectors know exactly what they have, and so you're not going to find, like, really good prices, quote-unquote, you know, under market rate prices for, like, dual lands or things like that, and you know, just certain particular cards, right, you know, off the reserve list and stuff like that, and something that Pokemon hasn't done that, obviously, Magic the Gathering has done, which is come up with the reserve list, which is just, these are the cards from these sets that we will never print. Like we, we commit to never reprinting these cards. And so, and so, um, you know, something that Pokemon hasn't done, which it's really curious, right? Because Pokemon has never committed to not reprint sets, you know, even though people have the theory of like, well, you know, it's been two or five years. What are people saying? Oh, it's been five years. You know, I think it's pretty safe from not being reprinted. But at the end of the day, the Pokemon company is a for-profit company. Pokemon is like, worth 94 billion dollars or something like that like 90 or 94 billion dollars um if they have an opportunity to make money they will do that and there is nothing holding them back from reprinting sets you know which
1: goes back to people don't think about the this is a people play this game right so there are certain sets that cater very well towards the the community of players in this hobby, right? Not everyone's just a collector. There are a ton. Competitive play is a major part of many trading card games, especially you know Pokemon and Magic. And you know you got to think about you know what are those sets that have those cards that are most attractive to the the you know competitive play community. And as the world reopens and competitive play, you know grows again both for magic and pokemon there's there's a large probability that they will reprint certain sets that had you know a very you know attractive set of playable cards because that's a big part of of the hobby that people Mm -hmm. I think underestimate
2: Mm -hmm.
1: i think it's a mistake to you know to your point just one thing i'll say on that is it is a mistake to not be a student of other collectible markets even if you are only taking action with your dollars on one thing like Pokemon or sports or what have you because these markets all have similar trends uh catalysts that create value similar bubbles similar you know market undulations and Certain hobbies and certain you know collectible sets of cards have gone through mistakes that have set them back that you can learn from as an investor in another hobby right mm-hmm. so for sure um I think that's super super important i think um there's a, a, a few guys that that talk about that a lot as being a student of of other other collectibles um to gain a better understanding of the Pokemon market gives you a better frame of reference for historical market undulations.
0: You know, and at the very least to, um, it, it will at least keep you patient. <laughs> you know, if you've seen like, oh, okay, well, you know, in the 90s with the overprinting of you know, uh, baseball cards and then the overprinting yep. of comic books. I mean, that was really big in the 90s. So, you know, are are we going through similar times with Pokemon? I would say probably so with modern sets especially if the reprints become even more of a big thing like what we were talking about uh with the rumored reprints for holy crap what's that we were just talking about it earlier today now that i can't think of it
1: um do they say burning shadows and um what is that i forget what else they they mentioned there's been a few of you guys who have mentioned it um Um,
0: I'm i'm
1: not certain
0: i can't remember now but um But, you know, anyways, like like kind of going back to it where we've seen, you know, these things happen at certain times, you know, for these uh, these hobbies. I mean, you know, those are at least things to keep an eye out for, because at least it'll make you patient. It'll make you a little bit more informed. And I always do like talking to sports collectors, specifically baseball collectors, because, Baseball collecting has been around for a really long time, like specifically for baseball cards. Obviously, like we've been, you know, memorabilia is a completely different beast that I literally know nothing about. Um, But, you know, with this, with baseball cards, that that's been a really, really interesting thing to look at. And so it's always nice to see, you know, what, what can we learn from baseball specifically just because they're the OG. OG. Yeah,
1: I've got boxes of those not early 90s cards that are worth Mm -hmm. a dollar for a freaking, you know, sleeved box of a 1000 of them, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. they were printed into oblivion. And that's some of the risks. Um, That's some of the risks when you get into into these into these hobbies for certain and baseballs certainly shown us uh, a lot of that. yeah. There's always those risks. There's always those risks. And that's, that's part of, you know, nothing is riskless, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's very few things out there that are truly riskless. So, mm-hmm.
0: Which goes back to, as long as you just buy things that you want and that are cool, then it's all good, you know? So it's yeah. just one of those things, but
1: Make sure well, you're you know, doing it for the right reasons.
0: Yeah, exactly. Know why you're doing it. And then that pretty much dictates all of your uh, buying decisions in the future so but um in any case i know we've been okay so we are on record for two hours and 45 minutes <laughs> so so yeah
2: great.
0: yeah th- this has been really great and i don't want to keep you because i know you have things to do tonight so um before we go first off i want to say thank you for coming on but before we go let everyone know like uh where we can find you
1: so yeah so um I, you know, I, I started at Instagram just to show off some of my my collection and, and better connect with the community and try to build some of the local community because I think that in this hobby, um, it is all about the, and this is very true in many aspects of life. It's about relationships and the connections you make and the community you're a part of. So uh, you can find me at Rock Pokemon ROC pokemon on instagram um that's where I'll, I'll i'll post most of my most of my pokemon oriented content instead of my personal instagram and uh feel free to, to hit me up there with any any questions you you have and uh always happy to help people with things they're looking for or items they're you know trying to figure out what the heck they are especially if they're japanese i might be able to help you out but um yeah and uh I just want to thank you a ton, Jess, for having having me on. Uh it's been certainly a pleasure to have connected with you uh and and be your hobby buddy. Um and I think that uh, we are both we are both uh much the better for having having connected and, and help educate each other. And I would just uh encourage your listeners to to continue to, you know, reach out to the people that they enjoy listening to and interacting with in the hobby because everything is about building those connections. And you will be amazed with uh, the ancillary benefits of connecting with people and being good to each other uh, in this hobby, how it'll proliferate out into the other parts of of your life. There are just a lot of cool connections to be made. So um, that's, that's what I would say is just keep keep relationships at the forefront, be good to people, uh, collect what you love. And uh, You can't go wrong if you you follow those rules, in in my opinion.
0: Mm -hmm. So true. So true. Yeah, it's been really great connecting. I'm really glad you hit me up because I've learned a lot from you for sure. And of course, you've given me Japanese cards in a way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Bad influence for your wallet. (laughs) Oh, my
0: God. We say that we're going to slow down. We're going to slow down. We're going to slow down. (laughs) But we like, oh, look at my mail day. I've got these (laughs) cards. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's, it's a, it's a positive and a negative, but at the very least we can kind of like, you know,
2: um,
0: I guess what you could say is kind of, uh, be like, well, you know, are you, are you sure about that? Like, I I think, I think what I do like is we also are, are, and, you know, James has done this to me too. He's like, you know, those unlimited cards, it's probably a good thing that it didn't work out (laughs) because they were all unlimited (laughs) cards. And I'm like, uh you're right. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's a good you need you need checks and balances in this in this hobby. And that goes back to relationships. And you know, I have a I have a I have a friend of mine who's who's also in finance who who is a good check and balance for me as well. Cause we we view the world similarly and we view the hobby similarly. And uh it's important to have accountability uh as an investor, as a collector. Um because that's the only way that you're going to be able to uh, stay disciplined is if you have a, a good community around you. So um, I, I would totally agree. Totally agree.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Couldn't, yeah, yeah, exactly. Same. So, but, anyways, like I said, thank you so much for coming on. And I mean, you know, we'll probably be, you know, DMing each other later <laughs> with James on more articles to read and what's coming up. the next few weeks so anyways thank you so much and enjoy your evening so